Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado. This is Agroecosystems of Tomorrow. I'm your host, Matt Wallenstein. Each episode, we feature the stories and the science of the Department of Soil and Crop Sciences. On today's episode, we welcome Dr. Scott Haley. Scott leads the wheat breeding program here at Colorado State University. Scott, thanks for joining us today. Uh, you bet, Matt. Glad to be here. Yeah. So, so you're a wheat breeder. When, if you think back to when you were a kid, did you have any clue that this would be the profession that you ended up in? No, I had absolutely no idea. Uh, I, I think, as I've told you before, I didn't grow up around agriculture. I had no idea there was even something called a plant breeder until I was well into college. So there's really nothing that I ever envisioned growing up. And where, where did you grow up? Uh, in Seattle. So I, I grew up in the suburbs just to the north of the city. And my dad was a stockbroker. He worked uh, in downtown Seattle on a big high rise. And he didn't grow up around agriculture. And I don't know how far back you'd have to go into our family to find <laughs> to find farmers. But my dad had an appreciation for agriculture. So he, he had lived in places before where ag was, was part of the economy. So he, he had some, some sense for it. But certainly it wasn't something I was exposed to growing up. Interesting. So, so what was your path? How did you end up? Uh, well, I, I made the decision to go to the land-grant university in Washington State, at Washington State University, and, and really that decision was based on finding the best four-year school that was as far away from my parents as possible, <laughs> mm-hmm. and that just happened to be Pullman. And so uh, while there, I, I started off in botany because I had a very um, influential high school biology and botany teacher. And uh, made me excited about plants and biology and how plants worked. And so when I went to college, what do you want to study? Well, I don't know how about botany. So I started off in uh, in botany and uh, didn't really see a career path towards that. What do you do with a degree in botany? And um, of course, at that time, I was not thinking about graduate school. I was just in college. Sure. And so then I moved into forestry and uh, didn't see a career path to that either. So I went back to botany and just did something a little more general. But the key trigger, the key uh, thing that happened was I applied for a job with the USDA pea and lentil and chickpea breeding program at Washington State. And I got a summer job and worked for them for two summers and one entire school year, watering plants in the greenhouse and um, helping them harvest the plots out in the field. And that was the first time where I had experience, where I was exposed to, wow, people do this kind of research. And uh, and that's um, that's I found it exciting at the time and and uh, you know application of genetics to make crops better I thought was really interesting. Yeah, so you found it interesting. Did you know at that moment that was what you had to do with your life? Still no. <laughs> I I realized that uh, when I was finishing my bachelor's bachelor's degree that that. Um, I, I didn't. I, I really only saw one of three options available to me. There may have been a fourth or a fifth or a sixth. I just didn't know what those were. So one was to go to graduate school. I didn't know what in. I thought maybe someday I might like to do that. My grades were okay. They were uh, kind of on the low end, but I was good enough to get into grad school. And uh, one was to take a job. I didn't know in what field, whatever, in botany. I probably wouldn't have worked in botany. So, And then the third uh, option as I saw it was to join the Peace Corps, hmm. and I took the third option, 
and and that's really what ended up changing my life. Wow. So where did you go in the Peace Corps? And I was in West that? Africa mm-hmm. in a country when I went there. It was called Upper Volta. And uh, about a month after I got there, they had a revolution and a coup d'etat. And then the year later, they changed their name to Burkina Faso. So it's a little landlocked country right in the middle of, of West Africa. And you grew up in, in Seattle in, in the suburbs. Uh, I imagine it was quite a different culture and and. I imagine everything was different. Well, it was a shock, I mean, because I was only 22 at the time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I was not worldly, I guess. I didn't really know much about politics or geography or world affairs or anything. And so it was a real shock. And uh, it was a very poor country. Um, I think at that time they were one of the 10 poorest nations in the world, and I think they're probably still the same. Staggering poverty and disease everywhere and poor sanitation and poor uh, uh, food availability and uh, malnutrition everywhere. And so, and, and so there's this, the shock of communicating with people, right, in French or in the local African language that I spoke. But, but then it's all the other things that we're not used to. And the food was very different. And so, yeah, it was, it was quite a shock. Yeah, and was there something about that experience then that fed into what you did, what you did sub- subsequently in the rest yeah. of your career? Well, I had, um, one of, if you've ever known Peace Corps volunteers, or known many of them, you'll recognize that volunteers, all sorts of different, they come from all sorts and sorts of different walks of life, and they do all kinds of different jobs in the Peace Corps. I had a unique job in that I had a research position. I was not in a village teaching English or doing a reforestation project. I was on a research station working for an expatriate. He was an Indian Indian fellow. I still communicate with him sometimes. Mm-hmm. But he was a cowpea, a black-eyed pea breeder. And I worked as one of his assistants. He wanted me to actually be in charge of his entire crew, like 40 or 50 people. And I said, well, I don't really think that's what I want to do. Can you give me a couple of smaller projects that I can coordinate? And so I worked on a project related to drought stress tolerance in cowpeas. This was in 1984 when there was that uh, uh, pan-African drought, We Are the World. Remember that back in the day? And then the other thing I worked on was uh, genetic studies related to a parasitic weed called Striga, which was a a big problem in that region of, of Africa. So... So that was really what changed everything. I got experience to crop breeding, and I saw the need. That was the big thing, was just seeing that people living with starvation and malnutrition and um, what that looked like. I just thought, wow, people, you can do something to try to help with that. And so I came back with pretty much a myopic view of I'm going to grad school to get a Ph.D. in crop breeding. Wow. So you were so in part you were you were motivated because you saw this opportunity to do science that made a difference in people's lives. Yeah. It and you know I it's not like I at that point in my life I felt like I didn't have meaning. But you know when you're 22 or 23 or four or whatever you, you're trying to find right what is your path and where are you going to find your place in life. And for me that just ended up being this. Yeah, and it's it's kind of odd looking at it thirty thirty five years later, and um, but that's it was just the best decision I ever made. But you, you think back to it, and boy, just happenstance, little decisions that you make, and how what a big influence that had on things. So right. Yeah. So then, and you came to Colorado State for your 
Yeah, yeah, I came, I came here just it was about six months after I got back mm-hmm. um, from from Africa, and you know the majority of that time was applying to graduate schools. Right, we didn't send emails in 1985 <laughs> to apply to graduate school. So anyway, I got in. I came here to CSU in June of 1986 and stayed here for five and a half years doing masters and PhD in wheat breeding. So for five and a half years, and then um, and then did what happened? Have you been at, at CSU ever since? Then? No, no, I was gone for seven years, um, and uh, I applied for faculty positions, and it was really kind of strange at that time. There were no jobs in private industry that I was aware mm. of, and uh, I had won a national award, and you would have thought that companies would be coming after me. Nobody ever did. Maybe there's <laughs> something wrong. I don't know, but... So I applied for a couple of faculty positions, and uh, I ended up pulling out of one because I just didn't feel I was ready. Yeah. And uh, I didn't feel I, think... I was ready to like lead my own program. I wanted more experience. So... Are you ever ready? <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. No, it's you learn every day. Yeah. Right? You learn on the job. But in any case, I went to uh, Michigan State University, and I did a postdoc in dry edible bean breeding and genetics. Mm. Great experience. Uh, really learned a lot from the bean breeder there, both personally and professionally, and got gained new experiences. And then I was just there 18 months. And then I got a faculty position at South Dakota State University as a winter wheat breeder, and was there five and a half years. Great, and then not, you saw, not very much time. <laughs> and then uh, was the was the position at CSU advertised? Was it something that? Yeah, it was yeah. competitively advertised. And uh, so the former wheat breeder, uh, Dr. Jim Quick, became the department head, this opening. He's three predecessors to you, I guess. Right. And um, so his position opened up, and I applied, and my wife was from Colorado. We uh, really always dreamed of coming back and um, got lucky, I guess, and got the job. So it's been hard to believe. It's already 20 years ago. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So when you started... Back here at CSU as a as a professor, uh, what were you trying to what were you trying to achieve with the program as you developed it? Well, uh, really, what I would say, what all wheat breeders do, we try to develop new varieties that have higher productivity. Here in Colorado, that means better drought stress tolerance and other stresses, disease and insect resistance, and quality improvement. So when, it, when I came, I, I recall, and I've, I've actually put this on a slide up to growers uh, over the years, but I, when I got here, I, I asked Daryl Hanavan, the, the director of the wheat growers groups here, what do you want me to work on, yield or quality? And he said, yes. <laughs> right. And so Colorado at that time had a very poor reputation for wheat quality. And, um, and, and there's a long story, a whole interview uh, on that. But Daryl said, we have to improve the wheat quality here. And so that's what we did. And and for for those of us that aren't yeah. experts, would um, what does wheat quality mean? What are what are the attributes that make a high quality yeah. versus a low quality wheat? Well, well, with wheat, the, the 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 first aspect of quality would be based on things at the farm level, where the farmer may or may not be paid for the protein content or concentration of the grain and the test weight. So those are really not very good predictors of quality. So then after that, when you look about look at this in a marketing context, the miller is the one buying that grain. And the miller wants to have wheat that gives high flour extraction, uniform kernel size, has to be the right hardness, mills properly, and then the bread baker has to make a dough of the proper consistency 
and then bake a loaf of bread in the case of, of hard winter wheat. So there's quite a number of different characteristics that we look at, and uh, we, have that, we have a really nice lab here on, on campus to help us do that. Yeah. Have you, um, ha- has it been hard to, do, to improve both quality and yield? Are, those, are there trade-offs? Well, there is a trade-off between, uh, between yield and protein. So there's the so-called dilution effect. Unless the farmer or unless the plant gets nit- more nitrogen fertilizer from someplace, okay, um, given a, st- a static level of nitrogen fertilizer, as yield increases, protein's going to go down. But there's really not any association between intrinsic, intrinsic quality of the protein. It's only quantity. So I don't believe, I'm not sure that's a, an opinion that's universally held, but that's not the case in wheat, in my opinion. Gotcha. We've been so able to advance both, actually. But so. and by how much? How, how over the, over the course of of your career, uh, how how much have you been able to improve mm-hmm. the quality and the yield of wheat? It's it's been we we've estimated. There's a lot of different ways one can estimate this, but I think we've averaged at about 1.4 percent yield improvement per year wow. over time. Wow. So walk us through. Whereas, whereas globally, it's like at one percent or or yeah. even less. Yeah. So walk us through your work. How do you mm-hmm. how do you how does one develop and improve uh, wheat varieties? Well, it all starts with making what we call a cross. We make a hybridization between two different wheats. So you can envision one wheat has good yield and good disease resistance, but poor quality. Then you have another wheat that that uh, has good quality and maybe has different. Uh, spectrum of disease and insect resistance traits. You make a cross between those. And there's a number of ways that we have then in wheat to then develop lines from the progeny among that cross. So we probably don't need to get into all that. A number of different ways. Over the last number of years, we've adopted methods due to the support we have from the growers to accelerate that process. Um, But in essence, what you have is you develop a lot of candidate varieties, and through testing and selection, you whittle that down over the course of years, expose them to different environments, find the ones that have the best quality and disease resistance, throw out the rest, and hopefully after 7 to 10 years or 12 years or whatever, you have an improved one. Wow. So so it must take quite a lot of work and, and a big team to do this. It does. Yeah. So the team that team that we have uh, here is second to none, I would say, and um, and they all have their areas of specialization in terms of greenhouse management, quality lab, and then the genomics and DNA markers and doubled haploids. But uh, they're all very dedicated and they're really good at what they do. Yeah. And uh, we couldn't be doing and uh, what we're doing or have, have had the degree of success without them. You you mentioned DNA markers. How has technology and our, our understanding of genetics uh, changed what, what you do and how you do it? Yeah, I don't know that the uh, understanding of genetics, of, of course, that's helped in some areas, but, but, but um, it's really more the technological capacity for doing large numbers of samples inexpensively has changed. And uh, my, my postdoc, I actually started doing DNA marker technology when I was working on a PhD uh, here, doing RFLP analysis, yeah. and that compared to what we're doing today, it's, I, I, you know, it's what is it, 25 years difference, but the, but what it enables us to do is just on a on a whole nother level. So, and yeah, that and that's really been the biggest change, I would say, 
over time. It's been slow. I mean, I've been doing this for 25 years now, and that's not counting graduate school. I've been a wheat breeder for 25, over 25 years. Thinking back to the technologies that we had back then compared to what we have today, it's, it's really night and day. And, and that's, an, that's allowed us to select for specific traits, for disease resistance or some specific gene related to quality characteristics, or uh, now using genomics and prediction and what, what's been come to be known as genomic selection. So, you know, I think consumers are, are interested to understand how their food is grown and how, how it's developed. And in your work, you've been able to improve these varieties uh, without what we might call genetic modification, mm-hmm. is that right? Yeah. yeah. Are there is there no, genetically no. modified wheat? No, not not grown commercially anywhere in the world. Now it's my understanding that just last week, maybe it's a couple weeks ago now, there's a company in Argentina that has received some sort of approval within the Argentinian uh, regulatory system to commercialize a GMO or a transgenic. I prefer the the term transgenic, but it, to commercialize a transgenic wheat. Yeah, uh, it's not being grown yet, uh, and so therefore <laughs> there is no wheat grown commercially anywhere in the world. No transgenic or GMO wheat. Yeah, and from your perspective, um, what's what's the sign? What's the difference between this new you know GMO wheat, a transgenic variety, uh, versus the way that that you change the the traits of a of wheat in your in, when, in, in your work. Well, the primary difference is just that a gene, a specific gene, has been transferred in from some other organism, other meaning trans. Right. That's where the term transgenic comes from. So, so that's really the only difference. And, um, but uh, there have been instances in some crops where maybe there's some allergenicity related. And we don't need to have a whole conversation about GM technology, but maybe there's some allergens that are being introduced into a crop species that weren't there before. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I've always had faith and confidence in the regulatory system that we have in this country. So Yeah, and now, now there's a whole new suite of tools mm-hmm. available for engineering plants um, that don't require the trans part, uh, transplanting a gene from one organism to another. So people may have heard of, of CRISPR-Cas9. How do you view that? Is that something that you see as being useful in in breeding as as we go forward? Oh, yes, uh, it's so exciting what could be done, and I'm I'm really concerned with what the the European regulatory body here, what two months, three months ago, or whatever it was, came out and said that the products of gene editing or CRISPR-Cas9 or whatever um, are not are, are going to be regulated in the same way as transgenics. That, that's a that's a very <laughs> different thing. It's an enormous mistake for for humanity, yeah. right? So uh, these methods are very precise. These mutations, which are induced, they happen in nature already. Right. Uh, there are other concerns, of course, that, that people might have about concentration of of uh, the f- uh, research into into foods being concentrated in the hands of a few companies, but but uh, that to me is really no reason to not go down the path to try to develop better agricultural products to solve problems for farmers and feed the ten billion. Yeah, right. So, yeah. and um, you know, so and you mentioned you've been able to to continuously mm-hmm. increase the the quality and uh, and yield of wheat in this region. Is there a point where we kind of reach the optimum of a plant, or is there always going to be a job for someone like you? 
Well, there's a few ways to look at that. Uh, you know, I just think look, looking at yield, right? If, if we give wheat all of the uh, just a perfect environment, all the water, fertilizer that it needs, um, we can do 19 tons uh, per, per hectare. And so um, uh, here in Colorado, average farm yields would be like two tons per hectare, or 30, 30 bushels. The listeners here can, can do the math. I mean, 30 bushels an acre would be two tons. There's a big difference there. Now, we could get there. We can uh, eliminate that gap or reduce the size of that gap better, faster, more efficiently with better technologies. But uh, otherwise, it's going to be a half to one to one point whatever percent per year over time. And, and what about things like disease, right? Is that, is that part of what you do? And is that kind of an ongoing uh, battle with the evolution of new pests and, and diseases? <laughs> yeah, very much so. So, you know, I've been here 20 years. And uh, when, I, when I came here, we did not have stripe rust uh, as a disease we we're, we're, have to worry about in breeding in this entire region. Now it's our most important problem. We didn't have the problems with viruses that we have today. And then this new problem, the wheat stem sawflies, devastating wheat production in areas here in the state, not just wheat production, but the whole agroecosystem. There's other problems. And so uh, we're having to address problems today that we weren't having to. And, and still, in essence, we're using old technologies compared to what's available. Right. So, so I just hope that... that um, Societies can come to terms with this and embrace technologies with proper regulation. And I'm not an expert in this area, but I've paid attention to it for quite some time. And uh, we need more technology, not less technology, right? Yeah. And and, um, what what are some of the other challenges that the farmers that you work with are facing? Viability is the first one. Economic viability of their operations. Uh, you know, in wheat, and there's been stories on this recently, Russia has emerged as a, as a major global export player. And so wheat is a global marketplace. Russia puts a ton of wheat on the market. It depresses prices. And so farmers here in eastern Colorado and elsewhere, they have to reduce their costs, which does cause some problems, but improve their, their, uh, improve their cost of production, reduce their cost of production. In the face of climate change, it's hotter every year at the wrong time, or we get late freezes. It's just more variability. And then the continuing evolution of these, these disease and insect problems. Farmers have to uh, deal with a lot, a lot of issues just to maintain break-even, right? Yeah, yeah it's, a, so, it's still a tough way to make a living, it even is. with all the technology out there. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's great. It's great that we have people like you helping helping the farmers, giving them better better varieties to plant in their field, and uh, making farming more efficient and helping to feed the world. Um, when you think about today's students, what I what I see in, in the current generation of students is that a lot of them really want to do something uh, with their lives that makes an impact on the world. Um, what looking back from from your story, you know you. Uh, you ended up in this field that, that was not something you even knew about when you were you were a kid, and happened to have some experiences that changed changed the course. How do you plan for that? What, what advice would you give the students to to find their passion and find their way to make a mark on the world? Well, the the first thing that I think in my own case was, um, I I just didn't I didn't see that uh, sitting at a desk, 
punching numbers as a stockbroker like my dad did. I had a lot of respect for him and what he did, but I just didn't see that that would be of any interest to me and that I would enjoy it. So even before I found a line of work that I thought might help and you know be of value, I felt I wanted to find something that I enjoyed doing. And there's that old adage that, uh, what is it? I'll probably mess it up here. But uh, find a job that you love and you'll never work a day in your life. It's something yeah. like that. And that's how I felt my career to be. So, so always keep trying to find something that you'll enjoy. Don't settle would be the first thing. And then... The second thing, and that would be what I, you know, advise the students that I'm, you know, that I'm involved with, is experience as much as you can. I mean, you're here at a college. There's all these professors. There's all these students. Get involved in clubs. Get involved in organizations. Bite off as much as you can can while you're here. You have to. They have to keep up with their studies, and and I and I understand the economic strain that there is today in higher education on students. I'm, I'm just shocked sometimes when I hear that students sometimes don't have enough to eat yeah. even. So I recognize that there's all these other issues that maybe we didn't have so much back when I was in college, but but get involved. Find a, find a professor to go work in their lab. Look on the web pages. Find somebody that, oh, wow, that looks like exciting research, and go knock on their door and say, hey, I want to work in your lab. And you, you, you just don't even know what kinds of opportunities that, that may open uh, for you. Yeah, it's so, so true. I think every day how lucky we are to be at a major university where there are so many incredible things going on. And I think the clear message, message to students is your job here is to take advantage of those opportunities yep. and uh, because – You'll never be surrounded by so many opportunities and have access to incredible things again. And you and you don't know what doors it will open for you. What what you might meet somebody. I, I look at my history, and uh, it was really just happenstance. Different things, different choices that I made. I'm sure most of us would be the same. Little decisions that you made or people you interacted with that just changed everything for you. And so if you're not involving yourself in different things, you're not going to get those chances. And so, so that's what I tell the students. And then I guess lastly would be don't think that you can't do it. Look at me. I grew up in the suburbs, right? And look at what I'm doing and how lucky I am. You can. Anybody could do anything if they put their mind to it and they're willing to work hard. So that's great advice. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. Well, thanks for joining us today on this first episode of Agroecosystems of Tomorrow. Sure. It's been fun, Matt. Thanks. Thanks.